Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, September 29th, 2019, we continue our series titled Genesis in the Beginning. Today's sermon, A Story of Faith and Faithfulness, will be taught to us by Pastor Thomas Slager out of Genesis chapter 24. Enjoy. Last week we were in chapter 22. We're kind of skipping 23. I encourage you to go back to uh, read that. I don't want to spoil it for you, but Abraham's wife Sarah dies. He negotiates the cost of a field. Um, So if you're in the middle of some business negotiations and you're trying to figure out how to better negotiate price of something, perhaps maybe go back and look at that. But uh, great story. Today we're moving on to chapter 24, and we're going to see the story of faith and faithfulness all wrapped up in the story of two people falling in love. Everyone loves a good love story, don't they? You don't. Because that's where we're at this morning. So uh, we're we're looking at a love story between Isaac and Rebecca, and we're going to see their awkward first date. I'm sure some of you have maybe experienced an awkward first date at some point um, in your life. If I can think back to the first date my wife and I had, uh, it was rather romantic. We were sophomores in high school. We'd been friends since fourth grade. And we were doing one of those DTRs. It's a define the relationship type of moment. So we went over to a a little ice cream place. And as we were there, she pulled out this list. And at the top of this list, it said, reasons why Mary and Thomas should or should not date. It's a pros and cons list. I'm not making this up. This is how romantic our first date was. So for the next hour and a half, We sat there evaluating this list to see what were the pros of us being together and what were the cons of us being together. Now, the pros of me being with my wife are immense. The cons are very minimal. The other way around, however, uh, her relation, I feel like I offer more cons than I do pros. So I was clearly getting the better deal of this bargain. At the end of our hour and a half conversation evaluating the pros and cons list, we determined it'd be a good idea if we went on a second date. So we went on a second date. I met her dad and he asked me two questions. How is your driving record and how is your faith? I said that I think both of those are strong-ish, I hope. So he said, go ahead. Then before our third date, he met me at a basketball game and said, if you hurt my daughter, I'll break your legs. So that was the uh, beginning of our relationship. It started in a weird spot. I feel like it's ended up pretty good. We like our life. We like the things that we get to do. But all that to say, uh, first dates are weird, aren't they? Um, dates, dating, dating is just weird in general, right? There's online dating, there's blind dating, there's in-person dating, there's um, that thing where you go to a place where you kind of date a thousand people over the course of one night and try to figure, there, there's all these different ways and different things we do to try to meet people. Dating is weird, dating is also new. It's like a hundred years new, right? In the grand scheme of history, dating hasn't been around for all that long. We think back to the first couple, the first man, the first woman, Adam and Eve, there was no dating, God just said, Adam, here you go. Okay, cool. Wow, whoa, man, right? Like, that's a good thing. That'll work for me. And then the same thing we see in the story today. There's no dating. It's Abraham goes and sends a servant to find a wife for his son, Isaac. And the servant comes back with a wife for his son, Isaac. Dating is weird, but dating is the story we see today. And through the story, we learn about the faith of a servant and the faithfulness of our God. So like I said, we are in Genesis chapter 24. There's two big things we're going to learn this morning. It's faith and faithfulness. Those are also the two outline points 
in your sermon outline, so let's just hop right into it. The first part of the scriptures we look at this morning from verses 1 through 27 are the faith of a servant. The faith of a servant. Beginning in chapter 24, verses 1 through 10, we can kind of frame this first part in the idea of the master's command. Beginning in verse 1, it says this, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. Now this is uh, an understatement. He's like somewhere north of 120. Okay, so he's, he's a pretty old dude. The Lord had blessed Abraham in all things, and Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son, Isaac. Now in verses one through eight, these are actually the last words that we see um, of the patriarch Abraham, and they're concerning um, the selection of a wife for his son. Now why is this such a big deal? Because remember, we've been looking at the Abrahamic covenant over this whole, the, the whole course of our time from Genesis 12 to where we're at now. God made these promises. God made a promise that he was gonna give Abraham land, that he was gonna give Abraham a family, and that he was gonna give Abraham blessing, riches, wealth, enough stuff to start his own nation. Now God said this was gonna happen through a son. Uh, Sarah, his wife, was barren, so they kind of tricked the system, and he got this woman named Hagar pregnant, thinking that would be the son in which God was going to make good on this covenant. Come to find out that's the wrong son. Chapter 17, God says, no, it's going to be through another son named Isaac. So Isaac is the person that all of these things, all of these covenants, these promises are going to, are going to be made true with. The issue is he doesn't have a wife. Okay, so the last thing Abraham is going to do here, the last thing we see him speak about has to do with finding a wife for his son. About this servant, we actually met this servant in chapter 15, verse 2. He's a man by the name of Eleazar. In chapter 15, Abraham talks to the Lord and says, God, maybe it's this guy. Maybe it's my servant because my wife is barren and we can't have any kids. Perhaps Eleazar is the one that's going to inherit all of my things, that's going to have my wealth, that he'll be the heir to the nation, the heir to all of these wonderful things that I have. And God says, no, it's not going to be him. So what we have here is a strange little thing. You've seen the movie Aladdin before? Right? There's this bad guy in Aladdin named Jafar. Okay, Jafar wants all of the guy's stuff. This would be like um, the dad telling Jafar, go find a spouse for my daughter because he is going to be the one who inherits all of my things. That's what's going on here. Abraham tells Eleazar, you're the guy who once thought he was going to inherit all of my stuff. Instead, now, why don't you go out and find a daughter, find a wife for the person who's going to actually inherit all of my stuff Chapter 24, verses 11 through 14, um, we, we see the beginning of the servant's journey and the servant's prayer. Abraham tells the servant, go back to my hometown and find my son, a wife. Now, uh, in, in, the, in the course of one verse between, between verse 10 and verse 11, we're covering about 30 to 40 days that the text really doesn't fill into. As verse 10 says this, then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. Now, we're not totally sure where the city of Nahor is. We know it's in Mesopotamia. It could be southwest, could be northwest, somewhere in the whole region. But we're there located right now in Beersheba, which is kind of near Jerusalem. We're talking about an 800 to 1,000 mile long journey 
to go find this guy a wife. Now, to put that into some perspective, um, I Google mapped it because I was trying to figure out if I was going to take 10 camels, a bunch of guys, and a whole bunch of riches, how long is this walk going to take me? Uh, Paved roads right now, about 300 300 hours of walking, paved roads. If you add on 10 camels, a whole bunch of guys, a caravan, all the stuff that we're going there with, this very quickly becomes a 30 to 40 day journey. Now, one of the things we're going to do this morning as we look at all of the characters of the story is we're going to evaluate the character of the characters because one of the characteristics that we see of this main character, the servant, is that he's faithful. He's faithful. He's trusting. He's he's trusting that he's actually going to go find a wife for this guy because no one's just going to waste 40 days of their life to go on this journey for no reason. 40 days there and 40 days back. He's a man of faith. Verses 11 through 14, and he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of the evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, now pay close attention to this prayer because he's going to ask for very, something very, very specific. He said this, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will also water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. He's praying for something very, very, very specific. He says, let the young woman whom I say to, Um, would you give me a drink of water? This would have been culturally normal, by the way. Women would go out to the well, and if there were people traveling through their country, they would oftentimes offer them a drink. This This was commonplace behavior. Yeah, let me get you a drink. You're a guest in my hometown. I'd love to serve you and help you. What would not be normal is for that woman whom this man asks, um, would you give me a drink? It would be totally extravagant servanthood for this woman to say, yes, let me give you a drink and also let me water all of your camels. People aren't going to do that. We'll see in a minute. We're talking like two, three, four hours worth of work for a stranger. Um, I'm not sure about you, Um, but I'm not totally sure I would volunteer uh, the better part of my day to serve someone I've never met before, especially someone just passing through. But as we see, that's actually what she does. He asks for something very, very obvious. This is his prayer. God, would you make it obvious? Have you ever prayed a prayer like this? God, would you make it obvious this time? Right? like wide open doors with arrows pointing to it type of thing. God, I'm, I'm, trying to, to, I'm trying to decide where we should move. I'm trying to decide the place our kids are going to school. I'm trying to decide if I should actually date this girl. I'm trying to decide my major. I'm trying to decide this, that, and the other thing. And what we ask God for is, God, would you just make it like plain as day? Right? And sometimes we get some options in our life and then we start praying a different kind of obvious prayer. God, if this is the wrong thing, would you just slam it in my face? Right? Would you just shut it down? Would you make that whole thing an impossible situation to where I know it's not at all even remotely close to your will? Now that's a good prayer. I think it's good for us to pray that God would give obvious signs. What the servant is doing here is different. 
It's very different than that. And what we need to recognize um, in this story, oftentimes stories we read in the Old Testament, they're descriptive of one specific situation and not prescriptive for all of us. Let me say it again. A lot of the stories we read in the Old Testament and in the New are descriptive of a specific situation and not prescriptive for all of us. Okay, let me, let me explain what that means. The servant that we have here, he's praying a very, very specific prayer. More than just God, make it obvious. He says, God, let the woman, the woman that, that my master is supposed to marry, let her be the one who says she wants to water my camels. It, it's, it's, it, it's, he's essentially backing God into a quarter and says, God, this is the way it has to be. Okay, now we know he's a man of faith and God still uses this story as he describes the, the different things God uses to bring this whole thing together. But it's not exactly healthy for us to do that in our life, is it? Right, maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're looking for a husband, you're looking for a wife. Let's say you're looking for a wife. It would be unhealthy for you to pray the prayer, God, the next woman that comes through the door, let her be my future wife. What if it's your mom? Right? What if your mom walks through the door? You're going to be like, let's try it again. God, it's the center aisle, whichever. No, it's, it doesn't, doesn't mean you're looking for a new job. God, let the next offer that comes up, let this be the job that you have for me. What if it's the mafia? You go work for the mafia? It doesn't make any sense. I used to do this um, as a high school student, not with the mafia or marrying my mom thing. Um, <laughs> I would be in, in my car praying, talking with God, listening to Caleb or whatever David Crowder song I was listening to at the time and just questioning things and asking God, be like, God, are you there? Do you hear me? Are you real? And then I'd do this. I'd back God in a corner. I'd put him in a box and I'd say, God, if you are real, I'm going to let go of the wheel and you drive my car. Does it sound like a good idea? No, my parents are coming to second service today. I probably won't tell that story. <laughs> no, it doesn't make sense. Why? Well, okay, what does that do to my faith? If God decides he's not going to grab the wheel and control my car, I just wrecked my own faith, right? I put God in a box and say, God, you need to function my way. You need to do things the way I say that you're going to do them. When we talk like that, who do we really think God is? Us, Right? You do things my way. I'm calling the shots here. Now, the servant has incredible faith, but the description of his story and the means he uses to find the will of God, which I think is good for all of us. I think all of us want to know what's the will of God for my life, don't we? What would God have me do in this situation? What, what would God like me to do? What direction should I go? What job should I take? What major should I choose? All of these different things we face in our life, we raise these questions because I think we truly do want to abide by the will of God. We want to know what his plan is for our life so we can walk according to the plan of the Lord. Placing God in a box, I don't think, is a healthy way for us to do that. But if I can give you um, three questions, we'll do this real quick and then we'll move on in the text. Three questions I think are helpful for us determining the will of God for our life. If you're taking notes, I'd encourage you, write these down. Three questions that help us understand the will of God for our life. The first question is this, what does God say about it? 
What does God say about it? If we open up his word, and this, the Bible is God's word, by the way. We don't just read this and study this because it's a really neat book. We study this because it's God's words to us. That's why this is a big deal to us because we believe this is God's word. What does God say? Psalm 119 verse nine up on the screen says this. How can a young man or a woman keep their way pure? How can a young man keep his way pure? And it says this, by guarding it according to your word. By guarding it according to your word. In other words, if, if I want to live a pure life, if I want to live a life that honors God, what's the best way for me to do that? Well, what does God say about it? What does God say about it? If, if I really am searching for a spouse, what type of woman does God say I should be looking for? Am I looking for the best of what the world says the world has to offer? Or am I looking for the things that God tells me to search for? If I'm looking for a job, maybe you have a bunch of different job opportunities coming up right now. Look at them and say, okay, do these things honor the Lord? Do these things help people walk in the ways of the Lord? If they don't, that's probably a good answer to your question. What does God say about it? 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17 says this, all scripture, and that's, that's the Bible, by the way, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. If you want to become righteous, okay, believe in Jesus because his righteousness becomes your righteousness. And then as we study the scriptures and find out what the scriptures say, we can do the righteous things that righteous people are supposed to do. And it says this, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The first question when trying to figure out what is, what is God's will for my life? What is God's will regarding the situation? We need to ask the question, what does God say? The second question we need to ask, what do wise believers in my life say? What do wise believers in my life say? Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15 says this, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Have you ever come up with an idea in your head that you think sounds amazing, right? You've got this whole thing figured out. Uh, maybe you're gonna build something or you're designing something or it's like an actual real serious life situation uh, and you're planning this whole thing out and you think everything's making sense in your head and then you make the mistake of sharing that plan with a friend and they're like, okay. That's the dumbest idea I ever heard in my life. Why would, why would we do this? Why would we ask the question, what do godly believers, what do wise believers say in my life? See, the scriptures actually say that when we believe in Jesus, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. That means if I wanna hear from the Lord, I can come here and I can read the Bible and hear from the Lord every single day. I can pray and ask God to lead me and I can hear from the Lord in that way. Another way that I get to hear from the Lord is by asking wise believers in my life because they're filled with the Spirit of God too. And oftentimes, God speaks to me through other people. Right? I haven't been fortunate to have like the audible voice of God experience like some people have. Um, but I've had really, really wise people say crucial things to me at crucial points of my life that I think was God using other people to speak truth into me. We want to know what God's will is for our life. We ask, what does God say? We also ask, 
wise believers for advice. This is why you need to be in a small group, by the way, so you can actually be walking through real life situations and trying to figure out and navigate this crazy thing that we call life. Third question we can ask, where do I feel God leading me through prayer? Where do I feel God leading me through prayer? James chapter one, verses five and eight says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Okay, this is prayer. Let us go to God and ask God for wisdom regarding any situation we face in our life who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. See, this is, this is what the servant did. The servant had total faith and total belief that God was actually gonna follow through with this thing. When we come before the Lord and ask God for his wisdom, ask God for his will, ask God to reveal his plan for your life, do you believe he's actually going to do it? Because the scriptures say when we ask for wisdom, God gives us wisdom. Three helpful questions we can ask when trying to determine the will of God for our life. What does God say? What do the wise believers in my life say? Where do I feel God leading me through prayer? As I said, we talk about the character of the characters. We see this servant is a tremendous man of faith. He thoroughly believes that God is gonna make good on this plan. The next part we see, Genesis chapter 24, verses 15 through 27, we see the prayer answered. The prayer is answered before he had finished speaking. So he's speaking this thing out, maybe out loud, in, out loud for people to hear. Maybe he's just speaking this in his head and in his heart. God, let the woman that I say, could I have a drink? Let her also say, yeah, you could have a drink. And also, let me water those, those big camels of yours. While he's still speaking, Behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. That means she's a virgin. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. And exactly what this guy asks to happen is, is what happens. He notices this girl, says she's attractive. He's somehow able to find out she's a virgin, probably by the way she's dressed. Uh, and, and he asks her, he says, could I have a drink? And then guess what this lady says? She says, yeah, let me get you a drink. Also, let me water all of your camels. Now the servant in his head, he's thinking, aha, I found her. This is the one. In verse 21, it says this, the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord has prospered his journey or not. Now to put this act of service in um, to context, um, culturally, these jugs they would have carried were like three-gallon jugs, and a gallon weighs about eight pounds. So if they're filling these things to the brim, we're talking about 24 pounds worth of water. Ten camels. I'm not like a, a camel scientist. So don't, I'm not weird. I just studied this stuff this week for this sermon, and then I'll forget it again because I don't care to know that much about camels. Um, ten camels. Uh, each camel can, again, if, they're, if we're topping them off and they're drinking their full, their, their fill, of water, a camel can drink about 25 gallons of water. 25 gallons. So after a long journey, this lady offers her service to water these camels. 20 to 10 camels, uh, 25 gallons each, 250 gallons of water total, a three-gallon jug weighing in at around 24 pounds. This well we're talking about, maybe it's like the rope kind that we probably have in our mind right now, where you, you, you fill the pail and you uh, 
That's like a total back workout for hours of her just doing this time and time and time again. Or maybe it's the kind where it goes down deep and there's a stairwell around it that leads down and then back out. Both of those are awful for this situation because she's got to carry all of this water out. So we're, we're talking about probably um, like 80 to 100 trips. 80 to 100 trips just to serve someone who's traveling through her town. This is about 2,000 pounds of water if she's topping it all off and we can probably safely assume this takes her about three or four hours to accomplish. All the while, it says the servant just sets his gaze to see if the Lord is actually going to make this thing happen right in front of him. Let's go back to Rebecca for a second before we return to the servant. Again, we're analyzing and examining the character of the characters. The first thing we notice maybe because the servant is a bit shallow, is that she's beautiful. That's the first thing that catches his attention. The second thing we learn from her character is that she's a virgin. She's a woman of high moral character. Thirdly, we see that she's hospitable. She goes over, above, and beyond. We're on an extraordinary servanthood here. She's a humble servant. She's totally set apart from every other woman who came to visit the well that day. There's a big Christian word for that word, set apart. It's sanctified. Sanctified. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3 says, this is God's will for our life, our sanctification, that we too would be set apart, that we too would become people of character that are different than the characters we see in our world. She's different. She's set apart. Genesis 24, 26 through 27, the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. I think there's three things we can learn just from the servant's prayer life here. Notice the first thing he did was request. The second thing he did was refocus. And the third thing he did was revere. He made this request of the Lord. He said, God, let it be the woman who says she wants to, to water my camels as well. And then when it seemed like this whole thing was actually happening, he refocused his gaze to see if this was actually God accomplishing what he asked God to accomplish. And then we had seen that God made good on the request he made. He revered, he worshiped. He took a moment to say, thank you, God, for being faithful to me and faithful to the request and faithful to my master. I think there's something for us to learn in there. I, I very quickly offer up prayer requests and then just forget them, right? Especially with little things in my life. Maybe I'll, we do uh, morning prayers with the kids on the way to school and, and morning we'll, we'll normally say, hey, God, uh, thank you for this day. Help us have a good day. And I pretty much forget that I prayed that. I will say, um, God, would you show up this way in my life today? And then I pretty much forget that I prayed that. That's not what's happening here. He prays something, and then he actually focuses to see if, if it's going to come true. I wonder if, if, if you and I, when we prayed and asked God to do something, if we actually focused on that thing, focused our attention on that situation, how much more frequently we would actually see God working in the way that we've asked him to work. This is what we see here. The servant says, God, would you work this way? And then he focuses to see if God would work this way. And when God comes through, he worships. Maybe we should do the same in our own prayer life. Request, refocus, 
and revere. What do we learn about the servant's character? Well, we see that he trusts God. We see that he's faithful to his master's mission. We see that he's all about his master. One theologian said it like this. You can put it up on the screen. Speaking about this servant, he said this, his thoughts were of his master, his words were of his master, his words were in praise of his master, his deeds on behalf of his master. He was not his own, but the bond servant of another. This is also our position. We see the servant is all about the business of his master. Isn't this supposed to be the mission of our lives as well? Look at the business of our master, Jesus Christ, and then look at our life and find ways that we can be about the master's business. If Jesus came to seek out the lost and save the lost and to serve everyone he came into contact with, doesn't that too become our mission? If the master's business was seeing people come to Jesus, if the master's business was serving people all the days of his life, what should our business be? It should be the same as our master. The servant was faithful to his master. The question is, are we being faithful to ours? That's the first section we see is the faith of a servant. The, section, the second section, which we'll move through pretty quickly, is the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. We see this in verses 28 through 67. We primarily see the faithfulness um, through the summary the servant tells Laban of this whole situation. Um, nine times specifically, ten times if you include Laban's response, does the servant credit everything going on, the intricate details of this story, he credits to the providence of God. He says, uh, God did this, God did this, God did this, God led me, God showed me. The whole time he credits everything to the faithfulness of God. The first part we see is Genesis 24, verses 28 through 32 in Laban's hospitality. Laban's hospitality will evaluate this character in just a moment. Verse 29 says this, Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. Now, check out what catches his focus and, and really gets his attention. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, these are things that the servant gave her, and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. Now, it seems like Laban's pretty hospitable because pretty soon after this, he invites the servant into his home for a meal. Uh, but what we see is that the first thing that catches his focus is this idea of wealth. This idea that there's something in it for him. He, he seems hospitable, but his behavior is questionable at best. In chapter 28 and chapter 29, he's labeled as a schemer. And in, verse, in chapter 31, we see that Laban is also an idolater. He's not the man that we think he is, just in this small section. He's all about his own business. And the mentality he has is this mentality that says, what's in it for me? What's in it for me, it's not the mind that we are to have. If you look at Philippians chapter two, verses three and four, it says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. This is Laban's motives. Selfish ambition and conceit, but in humility count others more significant. This is Rebecca's motives. More significant than yourselves, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Of course, this is modeled best in Jesus as Jesus gave everything, as he laid down his own life, that we might find life in him. 
In chapter 24, verses 33 through 49, I know it's a big chunk, but the servant offers up a summary uh, and shares just how faithful God has been throughout this entire course. And really, as we look back on the big theme of Genesis, I, I kind of feel like a broken record. Right? It, it seems like most Sundays since we've been in Genesis, the big theme has been faith and faithfulness. It's been sovereignty. It's been um, God's hand. It's been providence. It's, and, and maybe that gets annoying at times, but then I look at my own life and I can't think of or remember a day when I didn't need to be reminded that God is faithful to me. I mean... D- Whatever situation you're finding yourself in your life today, is that a message you can just abandon, the faithfulness of God? No, it's, it's something we need daily. We daily need a reminder that, that God is faithful. We daily need a reminder that God is in control. We daily need a reminder that God has a plan and that God can be trusted. In chapter 24, verses 62 through 67, we see the end of the story and these two lovebirds finally meet and then get married. Verse 62, now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negeb. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening and he lifted up his eyes and saw and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. Do you... Do you feel the love story happening right now? Girl hopped straight off her camel. She dismounted the camel and said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, it is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. It would be her way of saying, like, I want to marry this guy. She veils herself much as a bride would veil herself as she walks down a center aisle. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife. And he loved her. And he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Don't don't miss this. Okay, in chapter 23, we saw Isaac's mother, she died. Okay, she passed away. Um, Throughout this, this chapter 24, 16 times it references my master. And each and every time, It's attributed to Abraham, my master Abraham, my master Abraham. This last time, as he says, it's my master, he's talking about Isaac. There's an authority shift going on here. God is putting everyone exactly in the place he needs them to be for him to accomplish this covenant that he's made. In chapter 23, Sarah dies. At the end of chapter 24, it says that Isaac took his wife into his mother's house Okay, who's, who's the matriarch of the family now? It's no longer Sarah. It's Rebecca. We get to chapter 25 and this whole thing switches around. We get into this new uh, generation that we see in Genesis where it's the generations of Isaac and we see that Isaac takes the head of the family. Isaac becomes the next patriarch who's going to lead the covenant of God. The story is about the faith of a servant and the faithfulness of of our God. It's not about how to find a spouse for yourself or for your kids, although those are important. It's not about laying out our demands so we can understand God's will. It's not about hospitality or how to water a camel. But the story shows us that people of faith can trust their faithful father. 
Always. We can always trust our faithful God. So here's my question for you this morning. What are you trusting God for? What are you trusting God for right now in your life? Is there a big situation in your life that you're facing right now where you're not trusting him? Where you're trying to do things your own way, trying to lean on your own understanding? Proverbs chapter three, verses five and six, the last verse we'll hit this morning says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. What are you trusting God for this morning? Are you faithful like the servant we see in the story and are you trusting in the faithfulness of our God? This morning, we're gonna take communion together and I invite those who are gonna serve us to begin serving us communion even now. The night that Jesus was betrayed, I'd love to remind you of the story. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he was enjoying a meal with his disciples. Now, during this meal, they were passing bread around. He took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took a cup and he took a drink of the cup and he said, this cup represents the new covenant of my, of my blood. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance again of him. Now, what's going on in communion? God tells us in the book of Romans chapter three that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, none of us are perfect. We all mess up daily. God also says later in that book that the wages of sin is death. In other words, eternal separation from the presence and from the love of God. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's eternal separation, not separation, it's eternal union that we have with God. We get to be in love with him forever for all of eternity. In John chapter 3, verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not die, but they would have eternal life. Now, why do I say any of this? Because there's key in that verse, if we believe in him, that's the same trust. If we trust in him, we can have a relationship with him. See, the Christian life begins with trust. The Christian life starts with trust and the Christian life is meant to stay with trust. It's not as if we trust Jesus once for our salvation and then we graduate to bigger and better things. We trust him for our salvation and then we trust him with our whole life. Friends, this morning as we take communion with each other, I would ask you to do just one thing. The band is gonna start playing. Uh, I'm gonna pray for us in a moment. And, and, and after the, the band is playing and stuff, would you just take the cup? There's two cups. There's a little soup cracker. It's an oyster cracker and a little bit of juice. I'd ask you to bow your head and just ask God one question. How can I trust you more? How can I trust you more? For some of you, that looks like placing your faith in Jesus Christ and beginning a relationship with him. Um, if that's you, our prayer team would love to talk with you afterwards, to pray with you. Um, for some of you, who knows what's going on in your life, but God will reveal something to you and he'll help you trust you more. Let me pray for us and then we'll pass out communion and take communion in a moment. God, thank you for being so faithful to us. God, uh, even when we're faithless, you remain faithful. Even when we mess up, you don't mess up. Even uh, when our lives are a mess, God, you have everything in order the way that they're meant to be. This morning, as we celebrate communion and remember the sacrifice that your son made for us, as we trust in that, and trust in that for a relationship with you, God, would you also show us areas in our life this morning where we can trust you more? 
God, you've proven yourself faithful time and time again. Would you show yourself to be faithful to us again this morning? In Christ's name we pray, amen. The night Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples in an upper room and during the course of a meal, he took bread. He broke it and he said, this bread represents my body broken for you. Would you do this in remembrance of him this morning? In the same way, he took a cup. He said, this cup represents my blood of the new covenant. Would you drink this in remembrance of me? Jesus, we love you. We trust you. We are grateful for the faithfulness that you show us day in and day out. God, it's by grace you bring us into a relationship with you, and it's by grace you keep us in that relationship with you. Would you make us people of astounding faith because we serve an abundantly faithful God. We love you. Amen.